Hello, and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. Today, we have Sebastian Malaby, author of The Power Law, Venture Capital, and the Making of a New Future. Sebastian is the Paul Volcker Senior Fellow in International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations, as well as the author of More Money Than God, Hedge Funds and the Making of a New Elite. I want to start with a question that has nothing to do with this book, but might shine a light on how you got here. 20 years ago, you wrote an article called The Reluctant Imperialist about the U.S. and nation building. And I think it's fascinating to, to look back at it now, 20 years later, considering what happened. What are your thoughts on that topic and how has it changed over the last two decades? Wow, that's really picking something out that uh, nobody's asked me about for quite a while. I did write that article, The Re Reluctant Imperialist in, in Foreign Affairs, and it was an essay really about failed states, the power vacuum created by failed states. And of course, 9-11 was what made this front and central. And the sense that the power vacuum in Afghanistan was not something which you could ignore and say, too bad as a failed state, you know, that would really affect US national security if you did nothing to wit the Al-Qaeda group using that as a base from which to launch the 9-11 attacks. And so I, I kind of went back and talked about the imperialist rationale, which often was to fill power vacuums that were chaotic, that were spilling trouble into your, into the neighbors. And the impetus for going into Afghanistan, which different imperial powers have done repeatedly over the centuries is not so much they want to control Afghanistan, more they, they don't want the disorder in Afghanistan spilling over into some, you know, contiguous territory where you want order. And so I, I, this was a case for liberal interventionism. And of course, what happened after that with the failure in Iraq and the incredibly tough story in Afghanistan is sobering for anybody who is a liberal internationalist. And, you know, I, like many of my friends, would say that going into Iraq, given what I think we knew at the time, was a reasonable thing to do. But in retrospect, it was a mistake. Of course, I still think that there are cases like Afghanistan and the withdrawal that President Biden led from Afghanistan, which, you know, re-underline what I argued in that essay, namely, you know, sure, you can leave, but sometimes the cost of leaving is bigger than the cost would have been of staying. I mean, really, the US, by the time we got into the beginning of 2020, was maintaining a sort of low-level equilibrium, which wasn't at all perfect, mm -hmm. but which was sustainable in Afghanistan and at really a very, very low cost to the US. It was almost a symbolic thing that, oh, we've got this long war going on and we have to end it. Now, there are lots of deployments policing the border between North and South Cyprus which have been there for decades and decades, but they're not very expensive to maintain. And they do a huge amount of, you wouldn't just, you know, close down the entire police force in American cities just because, you know, it, you haven't ended crime for all time. You stick at it, you persevere, and sometimes you're willing to pay an acceptable ongoing cost to avoid a total breakdown. And of course, President Biden decided not to do that, withdrew, and now we're facing really appalling famine. So I, I think it remains a really tricky debate. You've got a real body of work now stretching back to the Wolfenson book. I'm curious to dig a little bit into your inspiration in examining this space. Is there a question that you're trying to solve? Well, I've written five books and four of them are really a sort of similar period in history from the 1960s or thereabouts to the present day covering different slices of finance. So there was the Wolfenson book, which was really about development economics and the application of development economics by the World Bank. Then there was the hedge fund history, More Money Than God, which is about the application of academic finance and ideas around public investing to, to markets by hedge fund practitioners. Then a book about central banking through the vehicle of a biography of Alan Greenspan. And now, why am I drawn to venture capital? Well, simply because it's the most exciting area of current finance, the financing of technology, which increasingly dominates the economy, you know, dominates the creation of value in the stock market, and is also an intellectual mystery, right? I mean, in most areas of finance, you would start by learning how to, you know, discount future cash flows, 
so you can figure out the fair value for an asset. In the case of venture capital, you don't have any cash flows when you're doing early stage. You've just got two-legged mammals who walk into your office with a dream. Equally, you can't do book to value because a startup doesn't have any book value. None of these metrics make any sense. And hedge funds are famous for investing, thinking about a normal distribution of sort of like excluding the extreme events from their expectations. Hence, you get long-term capital management blowing up. But if that's the sort of critique of hedge funds, venture capital is the opposite. You only care about the tail events. The really extreme outcomes where a company does 20x your money, 30x your money. So venture capital is an intellectual mystery as to, you know, all finance is about allocating capital in the teeth of uncertainty. But venture capital is just the extreme distillation of that challenge. Were you always interested in finance? I actually did economics at high school and decided I preferred other bits of my humanities courses. I, I loved history. I read history at Oxford. I then left Oxford and joined The Economist. First, I got an internship, and then they kept me, and I stayed on the staff for a dozen years. And that was kind of the way I picked up an interest in finance and economics, just by going out and asking questions of people who were a lot smarter than I was about how investing worked. I, I was the kind of fund management correspondent for The Economist for a while. It was just a great license uh, with The Economist brand behind my head to go off and ask questions. That was in the 90s? It was in the late 80s and then into the 90s. I did it in London in the late 80s, writing about finance for The Economist. I did more when I was in Tokyo, where I was the bureau chief. But I was particularly interested in the financial side because there'd been this you know, complete implosion of Japanese finance just before I got there. And then I you know, went to Washington, D.C. initially to write about politics and foreign policy for The Economist. I wrote the Lexington column. But then I switched over to the Washington Post and began to write a weekly column. And my interest in finance kind of rekindled itself, partly because I was at the Washington Post. And there were plenty of people who were doing politics really well, but I found that my comparative advantage was to, was to do the finance, the economics. And so I, I enjoyed that more and more. That led to my book about the World Bank. And then the next jump was into hedge funds. And then I was really hooked on kind of explaining finance. Do you think that the world of global institutions has changed since you wrote your Wolfson book. There was a great tension in that book between individual governments, these large institutions, and of course, a big personality. I think in general, we've had a you know, huge decline in trust in institutions. I'm not the first person to say that. And I think the World Bank and the IMF suffer partly from that, but they also suffer from something you know, bigger, which is that when China becomes a really important shareholder, and China fundamentally has a different outlook and a different set of interests. You get a split in the shareholders, which divides the purpose, that blurs the purpose of the institutions. So you see that coming up in the sort of furore over the World Bank's rejigging of the doing business indicators, where China apparently put pressure on the World Bank to up its ranking a bit, and the World Bank did that. Now, you know, that's terrible for the credibility of the institution, but it's also sort of inevitable when one of your most powerful shareholders is China. Answering your question more broadly, capitalism seemed to be working to many people's satisfaction in the 90s. That clearly is less, less true today. I mean, there's just been a loss of trust. We ask people in the United States, do you prefer capitalism or socialism? And a remarkable number will say socialism. One can debate what they mean by that. But there has been a, a, a big rise in the sense that capitalism is fundamentally not working for people. You're an old hand at this now, but I think people would be very interested to hear how you tackle such a sprawling industry like venture capital. There's hundreds of books and articles, and I think you interviewed several hundred people. How do you handle all of that information? Well, initially, when you're beginning, you don't know what you're doing because it is so big uh, and you don't know what the shape is going to be. You don't know if you're going to begin the story in the 50s or in the 60s or in the 70s. So you're looking for the origin story to anchor the book. And you also don't know really what the big themes will turn out to be. You're really at, at sea. And so you just have to dive in partly by reading everything else that's been done, partly by getting to speak with people who might give you advice on how to sort out the map and the territory, how to orient yourself. 
And you have to just be prepared for a few months where your head is spinning and you can't see the wood for the trees. But then bit by bit, by perseverance, you know, you start to say, okay, well, there is this debate about the origin of Silicon Valley and this figure, Arthur Rock, who financed the traitorous eight in 1957 and set up the first successful West Coast venture fund in 61. That feels like the right origin story. Now there are rival stories I could have chosen, but that felt like the right one. And then bit by bit, you, as you get deeper and deeper, you learn more and more, the story emerges. There's no magical answer other than huge amounts of time and energy. Well, what's your practical process like? How do you approach these interviews? Well, the first thing is to get the interview and that's not straightforward, right? I'm trying to speak to the top practitioners in the field I'm writing about and they won't immediately say yes. They're very busy people. They sometimes have proprietary secrets about how they are handling their business. And when you are writing a book, you sort of have to introduce yourself and build your credibility and say, you know, I know there are lots of people who say they are writing books, but my book is real, it's going to be a real thing. <laughs> so I'm the one who's worth talking to, not the other 50 who've bothered you in the last couple of years. And, you know, that's much easier. When I was working at The Economist or The Washington Post, the brand of the publication was helpful. Now I have to have my own network, which I do have from my past books. And I start with people who have been enthusiastic fans of what I've written in the past and try to get their help in introducing me. I was very lucky that people who had liked More Money Than God, my hedge fund book, turned out to know a lot of people in venture capital. They wrote emails, making introductions. And so I would go off and see these people and the warm intro is key. And in the case of Sequoia, it really took me two or three years to persuade them that I was worth um, some time. And then once I got in the door, and of course, when I do get in the door, I arrive having really systematically mined everything there is out there about them. Every single YouTube interview, every podcast they might have appeared on. I went to see everybody who used to work for Sequoia and had then left. I went to see other VCs who had served on the boards of startups with people from Sequoia. So I had done all the homework, which demonstrates seriousness, as well as providing evidence that you've got interesting questions to ask. And you also go in with a timeline, right? You need the people's memories when you're asking them about events that took place 10 or 20 years ago are going to be faded. So you need to help to jog their memories by saying, all right, I've done the homework for you. And I know that in 1994, you did this investment and in 1995, you followed up with that other investment and you served on the board of this one with so-and-so. And they told me that they introduced you to the next one that you did a year later. So now, and, and once you start describing the, 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 it kind of rekindles their memories and gets them going. And so then the victory comes when having been granted the first round of interviews with partnership like Sequoia, you, you go and you see three people. And then you're invited to see three more. And then they start saying things like, you have a good return on investment. The ROI is positive, so we want to do some more. And that's when you're on the right track. But if you ask me about the practical side, there is the, there is the sort of framing of the story through reading of secondary sources and thinking and consulting with people. And then there's the development of a network, which sometimes means getting to know the people who know the people who know the people mm -hmm. and being patient to get the access that really is going to make the book stand out. Well, in many ways, you're climbing the network that the VCs themselves have formed to find new companies to manage their deal flow. It, it is all ultimately done with introductions. That's right. Exactly. And so that in fact made Silicon Valley and venture capital in some ways an easier world to penetrate because there is that culture of making and taking introductions. And if, if, if you get the right person to send the right email as a courtesy to the intermediary, your target company is probably going to speak to you. Then of course you get back to your office and you have thousands of pages of transcripts. I mean, how do you plow through that? How do you decide what the story is, what you want to follow? Well, I'm fortunate that. Part of my process, and this is very much, you know, thanks to the Council of Foreign Relations, which where I work, they have, you know, they have a system where you have, you pair what they call a senior fellow like me with a young, brilliant researcher. 
And so I've always had a research associate and sometimes even two helping. And, and that's the part of the process where their help is really, really invaluable. And I find that the, the business of assembling enormous amounts of secondary sources, plus all the interviews I've done and kind of making an initial shape out of that is an immensely time-consuming, high-order challenge. And if I get the right research associate and I spend the time to understand each other and we, we both know what, what we're trying to do together, then the research associate will produce what I call a master file, which is generally more than 100 pages long and has all of the material on a certain subject, which is going to be a chapter could be even 200 pages long. That's for a single chapter. And so the ratio of material to what actually ends up in the book is, is sort of 10x. And I just believe you've got to go through that incredibly detail-oriented, laborious work in order to produce something that a reader is going to find worth their time. I don't want to rush it. I don't want to cut corners because there's lots of books in the world. And, and if you want to have a right tail outcome. In other words, people actually do read your book and then they tell their friends to read it and then they tell some more friends to read it. You better really do the best possible book that you can imagine doing. And I take five years and I have a researcher helping. And so in a way it's 10 years and I'm not apologizing for that. I mean, some people think it's crazy. My kids think I spend way too long, uh, but I just say I'm perfectionist and uh, I sort of owe it to the readers to do that. So anyway, these master files get created, they're enormously long, and then I sit down and I turn the master file of 150 whatever pages into a chapter of maybe 20 pages. And then the chapter will go through multiple, multiple revisions. I mean, I believe another kind of weird thing about my process is that unlike a lot of journalists, and of course I have a journalistic background and nothing but respect for, for journalism. But unlike the sort of standard practice, I actually believe in when I've written a draft, approaching the main characters and saying, look, you know, I've written a draft. I'm willing to share it, share it with you. I'm absolutely not promising I'm going to change anything in the draft, but I am promising that I will listen to any and all comments. And if you don't want to, that's fine. But if you do want to see the draft, you just have to promise me not to share it and that you understand that I might not change it. And then nine times out of 10, people are happy to read it. And quite a lot of times out of 10, they will, you know, they might just make a couple of factual corrections, which is good because then you want, you obviously you want as close to hundred percent accuracy as you can get. But sometimes they come back and say, you know what? Yeah, this is all right, but you really could have framed it better. You could have made it more interesting. There's another dimension, you know, and, and we should talk. And so then you do another two hours, four hours, six hours of interviews. And you completely redo the chapter, like radically redo it. And that's before even going to my editor at Penguin Press and the other editor at Penguin in London and my agent who's brilliant and colleagues of the Council of Relations who are going to give me feedback. I mean, there's, like, there's just multiple layers of this review process, which, you know, is time consuming. It can be frustrating because you think you've done a good draft and then you actually redo it three more times. But I just think you got to go through that as a writer if you're really trying to give it your best shot. Do you socialize these conclusions? One of the great things about the book is it extracts all these business lessons. You're constantly making an effort to try to develop some lesson out of a particular deal or a particular phenomenon. And I was wondering if you bounce that off of VCs and, and how they react to these lessons. I think they, it depends on the VC, you're not going to get a unified <laughs> a set of opinions on, in such a sort of opinionated and diverse, you know, uh, well, diverse is a noted word, but a very opinionated large group of people, let's just say that. And I, and I want to emphasize, I don't, I mean, socialize slightly gives me the, the creeps because one thing I don't do is, is hand over the, you know, the keyboard. I mean, I am absolutely making my own calls in what I say and imposing my own you know, wherever I come out at the end of speaking to 200 or 300 people and digesting all this material over five years is that that's my view, my vision, and not everybody's going to agree with it. And I firmly believe that I've got to own it. Uh, and so I, I, you get to a certain point where 
whether a VC disagrees with me or whether anybody disagrees with me, you know, I've heard every possible objection five times. I've gnashed my teeth and thought about it and looked at data and looked at the evidence and decided if I agree or not. And at a certain point, I know what I think and I really know, I think I know what the truth is. And I, I'm not socializing that. You mentioned that you spoke to Neil Ferguson, who of course wrote a wonderful book about networks. What did you learn about networks from Neil Ferguson? Well, you know, Neil is a wonderfully sort of sweeping thinker and I admire the way he can take an idea and apply it to a body of history and do what he calls applied history. I guess I'm trying to do applied history too, where mm -hmm. I am writing a history, but it's, it's supposed to have relevant lessons for how people might invest today or how people might think about creating another Silicon Valley in Europe or whatever it is. I mean, it's supposed to be applicable history, uh, history that you can use. Neil wrote this book, I think it's called The Square in the Town, which has a good introduction about network theory. And then he attempts to apply it to a set of cases over history. To be honest, the cases are beautifully written, not necessarily tied that tightly to the thesis, but he got there before me in terms of saying, okay, networks are something that could inform the way you think about history. And he isn't really looking at modern financial history the way that I am, but he he applies it to a, whole, a rather very eclectic set of vignettes about mostly non-financial history in his book. I think one of the main advantages of the venture community is the way that they share information. That's why I was interested in Ferguson. Do you think that information circulates differently in the Valley versus uh, Wall Street? Yes, you know, there's a lot to say about that. And in fact, you remind me that one thing I do quote Neil on, he has this phrase to the effect that ideas and information circulate faster in the valley than elsewhere because it's got social capital and it's the valley is just wired for fast dissemination of ideas. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's correct. And I picked that up and you know, Walker's wagon wheel. The sort of storied diner in the valley is sort of just one example of, you know, people used to go and hang out in the seventies and eighties after work. And they would be engineers from 3Com, Ungerman, Bass, you know, Intel, Hewlett Packard, whatever, all the great companies from that period. And the VCs would go there too. And they would be debating which type of networking protocol would, would become the standard, for example. And you just traded ideas and that, so that's an example of the social capital where people shared ideas and, and that helped the valley to carry less around the best idea. Uh, whereas Boston or New York had more of a tradition of vertically integrated larger companies that believed in corporate secrecy because that was the competitive advantage you didn't want to share with others. In some sense, because of the startup nature of, of Silicon Valley, if you think about it, today's competitor was probably the guy who was your colleague and you sat next to in the job you had 12 months ago, because you and he have both switched jobs since then. And by the way, you know that you're going to switch jobs again, probably in a couple of years, and you may find yourselves in the same place again. And so everybody in a sense is maybe your competitor, but also your collaborator. And so you get this competition mixture where you're competing and cooperating and it's extremely powerful. That was one of the great lessons of the book, that the folks have to constantly manage that tension in order to gather new information and stay in touch with people, but also the fact that you're going to end up working with them probably down the road at some point. Uh, Annalise Saxonian of Berkeley made this, this argument well 30 years ago in her book, Regional Advantage. But what I'm trying to add is that this social capital doesn't arise by accident. There's a certain tribe of people who are specifically incentivized to nurture that social capital and enlarge it. And that tribe of people is the venture capitalists. It's their job to get up in the morning and, and meet somebody for breakfast and then have 14 other meetings before they go to bed because they're always looking for the next company to invest in, or they're always meeting with the companies they invested in last year, or they're always meeting with the five engineers that their new company might want to hire or, or, or the marketing team or the potential customer or brokering a collaboration or a merger between two portfolio companies, meeting, as we said earlier, 
making introductions, taking introductions, moving around the ecosystem. That is the job. That is not just sort of a part of the job, that is the job. And I show that because I, I went to speak to all these people and there was a terrific guy from Sutter Hill who told me explicitly that when he got into the industry and he became a VC, his strategy was as follows. Think of the smartest people that you know who work in the Valley and go and have lunch with each of them. Then at the end of lunch, say, who are the two smartest people that you know? And will you introduce me? And then you go and see them. And then at the end of those lunches, you get two more introductions per lunch. And then when you've got this network of 100 or 200 people, you systematically stay in touch with them by sending them a new technical article that might be relevant to their work or calling them up and saying, oh, I just had such lectures with so-and-so and, and, and he asked after you. You keep that network alive and you circulate the ideas and the information and the money and the people. All of these things have to move around to create a really productive cluster. And venture capitalists did that. It didn't happen just organically because people are breathing something in the air in Silicon Valley. It is the venture capitalists who do that. And how would you contrast that to the way hedge fund partners network? Hedge funds, it's just a completely different game, right? I mean, the, the joke I always cite about um, macro investors is that when Lewis Bacon did really well and brilliantly earned a fortune and then spent some of it on buying a private island. His friends said it made no difference because he was so insular in the first place. He was a figure behind a bank of screens thinking about macro trading and he didn't really need to go off and see other people. Of course, he had a team of, of analysts and researchers. Of course, he had people he did talk to, but you can do a lot of this solo. And you are pulling the trigger pretty much solo. Often you, you don't want to tell other people what you're up to, what your trade is, because the trade will become crowded and that will be dangerous. So I think hedge funds encourage sometimes introverts who have varied perception and do brilliantly that way. Whereas venture capital encourages extroverts who like networking and who are good at kind of feeling where the consensus is going to be in their network of people that they work with. Now, are there similarities or differences between the way those folks network and make decisions and folks in the policy world? That's a great question. In the policy world, where I, I spent 18 and a half years in Washington, D.C., so I, I, I did imbibe that culture quite a lot. I think there's a mixture of discussion, for sure. People love trading ideas. They love spinning theories. They love having gossip about the horse race. And that's not just the kind of the election horse race. It's also kind of a, often a policy horse race between which idea is going to win out or which public intellectual is going to get their view accepted. So there's a lot of communication that goes on. And one of the fun things about being an economist at the Washington Post, and indeed an editorial writer, which I was, is that one of the big nodes in that network where Senator so-and-so wants to push a bill in the Senate and knows that one way of doing that is to pay a visit to the Washington Post and try to get the writers there to write something supportive. And so I felt I had a ringside seat, but it wasn't actually just a ringside seat as an observer. Your, what you wrote became part of the, the network and your articles would be passed around in caucus meetings and in the House caucus or whatever before a vote on some bill that you had held forth about in your latest column. So there's all that idea showing, but there's also a desire to protect your own connections because that's your, your way up the ladder and it's a competitive and backbiting business to climb up to the top of the ladder in Washington. And so journalists love chatting about ideas, but they don't like telling each other what their sources are or their contacts are. And the same, I think is true of people who are climbing the ladder as political appointees and, and so forth. So I, I think it's less collaborative in Silicon Valley. Adrian Woolridge did a review of your book and he had a question in it. Is an economy based on the power law compatible in the long term with a political system based on democracy and equality? Do you have any thoughts on that? I thought that was a really good question that Adrian Woolridge posed in that, in that Bloomberg article, because it's true that the power law is creating inequality. You get this skew in outcomes and the people who win whether they are the entrepreneurs or the early hires in the startup that becomes a unicorn, these people become 
extremely wealthy, as do the venture capitalists who back them. And then success feeds upon success. Once you've done one successful startup, either as the entrepreneur or as the early hire, or indeed as the VC, it becomes easier to do the second grand slam company. And so there's no getting around the fact that this is exacerbating inequality. But I'd say a couple of things about this and mitigation. One is that although it's creating inequality, I think you need to distinguish between kind of dynamic inequality and static inequality. And dynamic is way more attractive. So static is where you have entrenched power. Somebody is very wealthy or very high income, and they can protect that position and sustain it and maybe even hand it on to their kids. That's not great for dynamism, and it's not fair in terms of equality of opportunity. On the other hand, dynamic inequality, where some people do incredibly well, much better than others, but the winners change at least a bit. And so you're not necessarily creating more inequality of opportunity. You might be actually reducing that inequality. That's way more acceptable. And I think startups are clearly, clearly in the preferable kind of inequality camp because what they're doing is they're disrupting incumbents. So you've got some incumbent big company that is earning the rents that accrue from being a front runner. And then all of a sudden they're being disrupted by a startup. And then that startup, if it does well, will create a lot of wealthy people, but it's a different set of wealthy people to the incumbents who are working at the other company that's just been shaken up. So I think that's one point to be made about in defense of venture capital and the power law. And the other thing is there is this invention called progressive taxation and it should be used. I think the, the right response to market-oriented you know, methods that make capitalism efficient and that create new wealth and new companies and apply technology in a way that gives people more options in their life. The right thing is not to shut that dynamism down. The right thing is to let it rip, but then apply sensible progressive taxation to, to redistribute some of the fruits. And I think, I think I started by saying that capitalism was much more popular in the 1990s than it's become today. I don't think it's a coincidence that during that period, the estate tax has been gutted. And it's an outrage that it should be gutted because you can believe in capitalism and incentives, but that doesn't justify passing down wealth in an unencumbered fashion to heirs of rich people. So I think, you know, there's the estate tax, there's other kinds of progressive that could be deployed to make sure that the, the fruits of entrepreneurship are spread a bit. But I don't think you should get in the way of entrepreneurship. I want to pick up a little bit. You just mentioned disruption in the, the corporations, but there's also disruption to some extent in the funds themselves. You note in the book several times that half of the returns go to the top funds and half of the returns end up going to new funds. Did you get any insight and a sense of what affects this turnover in VC firms? Why some stay at the top? You would expect there to be path dependency in venture capital returns. And indeed, a lot of people, when I was starting this project, would say to me, look, this, you're not going to find any skill because basically if you do well at the beginning, and that could just be a lucky break, you've got the Midas touch that will bring you great deal flow. And you don't need to be skillful. You just need to mine your advantage. And the advantage is partly the deal flow. It's partly that you could probably get into the deal at a slight discount if you've got a gold-plated reputation and people want you on their cap table. And then you could probably also raise the next round for your portfolio company at a higher price and get a better valuation and better markup for your stake. If you are a A-branded VC, people want to be the follower into a deal that you've been in for the earlier round. So you can buy low and sell high on the strength of your reputation. So a lot of people say to me, yeah, there isn't a skill. But it turns out, as you've alluded to, that actually the path dependency, when you look at the data, is not absolute. Companies do fall from grace, lots of them, Mayfield, 
was a big player and then ceased to be more recently Kleiner Perkins in the nineties and into like 2000, 2001 was the top partnership and then ceased to be. Why is that? Well, uh, the best answer I came up with is that it's to do with the internal glue inside the partnership. Some VC partnerships are collections of individuals that may meet on Monday for a partners meeting, but essentially they are individuals going off and doing deals. And that turns out to be a less powerful way to invest than if you really cultivate the internal teamwork. And it also sets you up for trouble when you have a succession challenge, when you need to hand, when the founding partner retires, how do you decide who is the new kingpin? And there can be all sorts of fights over how the carry is shared and, and that can destroy a partnership pretty quickly. But even without getting to those fights over the carry, I think the decision-making is better when you have a real ability at the Monday meeting to collectively debate. And the illustration here is kind of Perkins. So in the nineties, there was John Doerr and Vinod Kosler as the two biggest rainmakers of the fund. In 2001, in the Forbes minus list, they were ranked number one and number three. Kostler was number one, Doerr was number three of all the VCs in the world. So two super powerful leaders who could disagree with each other and check and balance one another. And then on top of that, there were several other people in the partnership who weren't quite as stellar in, in their ranking in the Midas list, but they had known Vinod and John for a long time. And they had the standing to say, wait a second, you're ignoring this obvious question as to why this deal might not work. You're over your skis. I've seen you do this before. Don't get so emotional about it. They could really talk them off a ledge. And then because Kleiner had done so well, partly, everybody had enough money to go off and start their own thing. And there was a moment when they did that. Vinod Costa went off and started Costa Ventures and three or four of the others went off and started their own thing. So you have this, this breakup of the old team and John Doerr is left standing with no peer to check him. And although he vociferously debated this with me and denied the truth of what I was saying, I am firmly of the view that there was just nobody who would say boo to John. And so if he had an idea, he would run with it and nobody would block it. And so he could go into clean tech and way overdo it. And that took Kleiner from being the company which in 2001 had two investors who were number one and number three in the Midas list, and that's not counting a whole bunch of others who were somewhat lower down. You fast forward 20 years, and there was only one venture capitalist from Kleiner Perkins in the entire top 100, and that person was 77. Just a spectacular collapse. And it has to do with that failure to maintain the checks and the balances and the glue and the camaraderie. Where does corporate venture fit into this picture? I'm a little bit skeptical about corporate venture. And the reason is that I'm always skeptical about investment vehicles, which appear to have more than one objective. In the world of hedge funds, you sometimes get so-called hedge funds, which are owned by a bank, Bear Stearns operated credit hedge funds famously before 2008. And no surprise really when they blow up, right? Because the Bear Stearns hedge funds are on the one hand trying to take positions and invest because they think whatever they're buying is going to go up in value, but they're also kind of investing with a view to the idea that Bear Stearns is a deep pocketed parent and Bear Stearns will bail them out if they take too much risk. So there's slightly a trader's option there. And then they may also be investing. I don't know if this is true. Actually, I can't remember whether the Bear Stearns hedge funds were guilty of this, but certainly in some cases it's true that, you know, the parent company would like the investment fund to buy a bit of such and such because it fits with some other part of their strategy. And corporate venture is clearly doing that, right? Corporate venture is the classic case is you've got an established industrial company that is aware that Silicon Valley is disrupting everything and that new inventions may be coming down the pike, which are going to disrupt the traditional car industry, for example. So what do you do? You create a corporate venture vehicle that will go off and invest in auto-related 
technologies in the valley. Now you have a seat at the table at those startups. And so you have a sense of what the ideas are coming down the pike and you get advanced warning for your legacy companies about how they might have to adapt. Now that's a perfectly good strategy in terms of corporate management, but you're blurring that with a strategy about maximizing returns as a venture capitalist. And then also there are issues about how you compensate the investors. It, sometimes it's difficult to, to give them carry at a corporate venture shop in the same way that is possible at a freestanding venture shop. So all of these things lead me to believe that corporate venture is just not the cutting edge. I think the returns broadly uh, reinforce that view. So they're not a big part of my book. Do you feel like corporate venture is really more a part of the corporate world or more a part of the venture world? I'd say it's got a heavy dose of corporate world. This is a generalization and I'm sure people will have uh, legitimate exceptions to this view, but to the extent that I'm right, that in some cases, at least corporate venture is not taking the carry and sharing and giving that to the GPs in the same way as would be done at a freestanding venture shop, you're, you're just not going to be able to recruit the same people. It's a competitive business hiring the best GPs and I was just uh, chatting with Sequoia recently about the way when they recently set up a venture shop in Europe, they wanted to get the best investor that existed in this new space they wanted to get into. I mean, they wanted the best. And so they identified Luciano Luciandru, who is a Romanian investor who was the backer of UiPath, which is now the leader in robotic automation software. And they wanted to hire her. Now she was working at Axel, also a very good venture partnership, pretty tough to steal somebody away from her, from, from Axel, but they really went out of their way. And I don't know the terms of the financial deal, but I do know that it involved assigning her a code name, having secret meetings in out of the way restaurants in London, sending person after person to London to kind of talk to her and win her over. I mean, huge resources were devoted to persuading her to jump ship and they succeeded. And now they've got this charismatic, you know, woman investor in her late thirties, who's done one of the biggest deals in the continent to spearhead their effort in Europe. I don't see a corporate team doing that. One of my favorite concepts in the book was the idea of the prepared mind. What can you tell us about that? Well, I'm glad you asked that because the prepared mind was invented by Axel, the partnership I was just talking about that lost Luciano Alexandru. And Axel, when it started up in 1983, was choosing an interesting moment in the venture history where the, the boom in venture dollars in the late 70s and early 80s, pursuant to two regulatory changes that made it easier for funds and endowments to put money into VC. You know, there'd been this boom and new venture partnerships were starting and Excel was one of them and they needed to differentiate themselves at the start. You see this repeatedly through the history. You see benchmarks starting in 1995 and, you know, offering a, what they called a better architecture, the way they organize themselves. You see in 2009, Andreessen Horowitz starting up and saying they had a new way of doing venture, right? The service uh, VC with this huge, great kind of consulting machine that they made available to their portfolio companies. So in the same manner, Axel in 1983 wanted to differentiate itself and, and, and show that it was putting a spin on the traditional venture model. And one of the things it did was to specialize, to say, rather than just doing any kind of tech deal we can see, we're only going to do deals in a two or three areas. Another thing they did was to be a bit more forward leaning about publicizing themselves. They organized a conference at Stanford, of course, social media had not been invented. So they didn't do what Andreessen Horowitz did, which, which is to create a kind of radio version of Facebook, but they were doing the big mouth strategy. They were planting their flag in particular areas. And the other thing they did was to invent the prepared mind and the prepared mind said, we're going to do a management consulting kind of study of some emerging technology, right? It could be that we think networking technology is revolutionized by ethernet. And we're going to figure out prospectively what new companies are likely to arise from this new technology. Would it be that there'd be a totally different kind of router? Would it be that software will have to be invented to go with that? It could be anything. 
perhaps it's new kinds of semiconductor would be needed to power these new routers. And having prepared our minds, we then are going to be able to connect with the entrepreneurs who want to do companies in this space, because we'll have our own vision of the future and they will have a specific idea, but we'll have the map and the territory and that would be useful to them. We'll make a faster decision on whether to fund them because we'll have a view before we've even met them as to what's going to work in this space. And we'll even have a view on the profile and the type of person who is likely to succeed. So in the original phase, that might have meant, okay, we want to do networking stuff. We know that people coming out of Bell Labs, terrific at this. We know that certain university engineering faculties, very good at this. So we're going to target people coming out of three or four places. But fast forward, they were still applying this idea in the 2000s to social media. And they had this revelation that the new breed of social media communications, web applications, these were being founded by not cookie cutter, a lot of hair on the deal was the expression they had. And they'd looked at Skype, for example, and you had to sign an NDA even to talk to the founder. And he was wanted by the law in some jurisdictions for having apparently intellectual property disputes associated with him. There were lots of things about Skype that would have led you to just not even go near it, but it was growing exponentially in terms of consumer uptake. And they looked at Skype, they, some of them wanted to do it. Others thought the entrepreneur was too weird. They didn't do it. And then it took off and they drew the lesson in this prepared mind exercise. Okay. Next time we see somebody who looks a bit weird, but they've got fast uptake from consumers. Never mind about the weird you want to invest in that. And then along came none other than Mark Zuckerberg. Super weird, right? I mean, this guy's like 20 years old. He won't look you in the eye. His business partner is Sean Parker, who has been fired from his previous two startups for misconduct of various kinds. You know, this is, this is a sort of company that a traditional VC would not have touched with a barge pole, but Facebook had extremely fast uptake on college campuses. Axel had prepared its own mind. And when it saw this deal arrive, it just went for it and it refused to you know, take no for an answer. It didn't mind how, how much humiliation it went through Zuckerberg before they were allowed to get a meeting. They begged for a meeting. They finally got a meeting and then they just paid up what was at the time viewed as a kind of crazy valuation. And they only got 12 and a half percent of the company for it. They were willing to pay up and willing to hold their noses about Zuckerberg's youthful arrogance. And they did the deal, which turned out to be one of the best ever early stage deals in the U.S. venture history. While we're on the topic of mindset, one of the names that comes up in the book uh, a few times is Ayn Rand. Don Valentine was a fan. Peter Thiel, obviously, is a fan. The name pops up quite a bit in venture uh, and, of course, also in hedge funds. But I'm curious as to how that particular mindset helps folks in this space or why it's so prevalent. I really grappled with Ayn Rand when I wrote about Alan Greenspan because he was pretty much the chief economist of Randian economics, super close to Ayn Rand, and indeed proofread parts of Atlas Shrugged for her. So I, I spent a lot of time Ayn Rand for that project. She does come up a little bit, and it, it's sort of a bit helpful in understanding why some of the early figures like Don Valentine resisted the temptation of taking government loans, which were then a popular way of kickstarting a venture fund. You could get a a cheap loan from the Small Business Investment Corporation, SBIC, which was an absolute kiss of death and a crazy thing to do because if you took a loan, you had to pay back some interest. When you're trying to fund a startup, the last thing you want to do is make it pay you money. Uh, you're supposed to be investing in a growth thing. It's not supposed to be paying you. You're supposed to be giving it capital. So I do mention Ayn Rand a bit, but I would say that actually there are lots of other kinds of literature, you know, notably science fiction writers who figure uh, more prominently in the thinking of some of the Valley's leading lights. We had this completely new industry grow up almost overnight, really the last two years that is not only venture funded, but they actually create their own money. And, and I was wondering what your thoughts were about crypto and will crypto be a, a kind of a speed run through all of the ideas in your book, or will this be something completely different? Crypto and 
Web3 and NFTs and blockchain is just an immensely fascinating area. I've thought about writing a book about that next. Yes, you're, you're guessing right there. The challenge which perhaps you can help me with is how do you find the narrative arc, right? Normally you need a story which lands somewhere at the end where the reader is rewarded for having plowed through, you know, uh, two or 300 pages at least in order to get to a kind of satisfying end of story that's really mattered for the world. This wasn't just sort of a garage experiment. I didn't just spend three hours, three, you know, more than that probably, reading about a science project, right? Uh, you, you, you needs to actually connect with the real world in a satisfying way and make an impact. And I think Web3 and crypto are going to do that. I just don't know that we know which bit of it is going to do that. We're in the 1993 internet period where Netscape hasn't come along yet. And, you know, it's a bit of a hobbyist delight and we don't know how it's going to break into the mainstream. The closest I've got, I tell you, is that I think Andreessen Horowitz and putting this much money into backing Web3 experiments is maybe in itself the story, right? You've got the company bearing Andreessen's name. He, of course, was the coder who led Mosaic and then Netscape, it would be fitting if he created not only the Netscape moment for the internet, but the equivalent for Web3. And I don't know if they would like to give me enough access to understand that story and tell it really well, but that's one hypothesis about another book. One other last question is, more money than God, your, your conclusion from that book was hedge funds play an important role in balancing the market and they don't have the backstops of the other players. Have you changed the way that you look at hedge funds in the last 10 years? Because when you wrote that, I think you wrote that book in the aftermath of the GFC when the world looked, looked somewhat different. Yeah, I've changed my views a little bit on hedge funds. I'll tell you first where I have not changed. You know, I still think that they are terrifically healthy for the financial system, right? Financial risk is not going to go away. Markets will go up and down. Currencies will fluctuate. There are going to be difficult bets to make on an uncertain future, right? So there is risk. You can't wish that away. The question is where you put the risk. And if you want to, you can put it in a too big to fail institution. You can put it in a bank or in an investment bank or a money market fund. All of these things were bailed out in 08. But hedge funds were not bailed out. You know, I sometimes say this and I get an absolute, you know, flood of furious Wall Street bets, emails or tweets or whatever, calling me an idiot. But it's the truth. I mean, you know, hedge funds did not get bailed out in the crisis. And that's a pretty remarkable thing. And it, it's obvious why the structure of a hedge fund is that you borrow money secured against the liquid positions that you hold. And when those liquid positions start to go down, your funders yank the loan. I mean, your prime brokers say, you either post more margin now or, you, or you're going to close your position. And that means that hedge funds get wound up before they go to negative real value. And so it's not only that they're small and therefore the government doesn't feel it has to rescue them. It's also just the structure of them is, is extremely good in terms of safeguarding the system. So I think it's a great way to, if you've got financial risk, Let's put it in the hedge funds as much as possible, and it'll be better for the safety of the system and for taxpayers. Now, there's a different part of the conclusion of more money than God, where I have to say that the conclusion didn't hold up quite so well. And that is in terms of the alpha that gets generated, right? When I wrote my book, the best research suggested that the sector, when you looked at it, net of fees and correcting for various biases in the data very carefully, there was 3% positive alpha per year. That is a stunningly good result, all right? Because as you know, if you have a diversified investment portfolio, you put, you know, five, 10, 15% into alternatives. Let's say it's mostly hedge fund alternatives. If you can generate any return whilst not adding to the volatility of your overall portfolio, that's good for your sharp ratio. If you can generate 3% and then have an uncorrelated return profile, right? Which is actually reducing the volatility of your total portfolio. That's extremely good for your sharp ratio. So, yeah, you know, people sometimes make the glib 
newspaper comparison, oh, you know, last year, the S&P 500 was up this much and headphones were up that much and S&P outperformed. So stupid hedge funds, you know, these overpaid money managers, you know, shouldn't we just close them all down? I mean, that's just a fundamentally uh, short-sighted interpretation because it's not about just outperforming. It's the risk-adjusted performance that you look at in money management. So anyway, so performance looked terrific in 2010 when I published More Money Than God. But since then, the performance has gone down. Why did it go down? My central view is that hedge funds get paid to price risk. And when risk spreads are dampened by the central bank, which comes along and does quantitative easing, which is explicitly designed to push capital out the risk curve and therefore dampen the yield you get on risky assets, right? It's, it, it's deliberately compressing the spread between the risk-free rate and the risky rate. So the people who cleverly assess risk and make bets on that assessment are being paid less to do what they do because the spreads have been reduced. And I think that's the central reason why hedge fund returns have gone down. There may be others as well. Maybe there was some crowding, you know, there, there could be a bunch of things, right? But so therefore, I think that looking into the future, as inflation has now returned, the central bank has to raise rates, risk spreads will decompress. I'm hopeful, not that I really have any, I don't have a stake in this, right? But just intellectually, I, I think that hedge fund returns are going to go up because fundamentally the vehicle, the platform that you get as a hedge fund manager, where you have skin in the game from the money manager, so therefore an incentive not to take too much risk and blow up the fund and yet carry where you share in the upside. So you do have an incentive to take enough risk and to think really intelligently and hard about where the alpha might be. But that is just an extremely good alignment of incentives. And you're not backed by a deep pocketed parent company and you don't have government backstop and taxpayers won't bail you out, which is a further healthy discipline. That is just a terrific sort of institutional basis on which to, to manage money. And so I'm bullish on hedge funds in the same way I'm bullish on VC, because I think that VC, for a different set of reasons, it's just the kind of vehicle that fits a world with intangible capital, right? More and more of capitalism is founded upon not the kinds of capital that you drop on your foot, but it's founded upon software, upon ideas, pharmaceutical patents, business processes. All of these intangibles are really what drive the modern economy. And if you want to invest in those intangibles, you can't just be reading a balance sheet, a financial statement, because the financial statement will just say, oh, there's a software project here and it costs $3 million. That's irrelevant. What matters is, was it a good software project? Because it might be worth zero if it's rubbish, or it could be worth $3 billion or $30 billion if it's a terrific genius piece of code. And so I think VCs are the people who understand the difference between good software and bad software, who understand the technical detail of the companies that they're investing in, and they are positioned to run these iterative experiments on applied science and back the outlier winners that generate power law returns. And so just as, you know, in the 19th century, the joint stock limited liability company was the legal financial mechanism to make big companies happen. And just as the junk bond plus the leverage buyout was the legal financial mechanism that you needed to re-engineer corporate America after the invention of the PC. So too today with the rise of intangible capital, you need a new legal financial mechanism and that is venture capital. And that's why it's spreading to Europe. That's why it's spreading to Asia. That's why it's spreading into new kinds of industry. And that's why I'm super excited to see what happens next. How do you think venture fits into stakeholder capitalism? If you mean multiple bottom lines, I don't think it fits particularly well, right? Startups are not about being warm and cuddly. It's about working super hard and throwing moderation out of the windows. And so I think, you know, the way that venture capital benefits society is, is manifold and through other routes, including that the LPs in a lot of the top venture funds are endowments that back various charities or universities. So that's good. 
But let's face it, VC is about making big profits by working very hard, putting capitalist values first. Excellent. The name of the book is The Power Law, and the author is Sebastian Malaby. Thank you, Sebastian. Great conversation, and thank you for having it. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.